Well, thank you, Jonathan, again for uh, your kind, kind words this evening. I have to say I've really enjoyed my uh, five nights up here in new buildings, and I know when I come to New Buildings Independent Methodist Church, I'm amongst friends, and that, that is no exaggeration, and I've really enjoyed my time. I was even offered a bed by our brother here last night, and thankfully I didn't need it because we made it home safely. Um, it hadn't snowed anymore uh, during the meeting, so we were able to, to make it home last night, and we're back again for the fifth and final time, and we give God thanks uh, for that. So we'll turn again in Ephesians chapter 6 for the final time this evening, and and verse 10. No doubt some of you could um, have already these verses memorized. I'm not asked anyone to to read them or or to say them from memory, but uh, we'll go through uh, God's word tonight here. Ephesians 6, reading from verse 10. Finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. Put on the whole armour of God that ye may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. For we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities and against powers and against the rulers of the darkness of this world and against spiritual wickedness in high places. Wherefore, take on to you the whole armour of God that ye may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand. Stand therefore, having your loins girt about with truth, and having on the breastplate of righteousness, and your feet shod with the preparation of the gospel of peace, above all taking the shield of faith, wherewith ye shall be able to quench all the fiery darts of the wicked. And take the helmet of salvation, and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, praying always with all prayer and supplication in the Spirit, and watching thereunto with all perseverance and supplication for all saints." And for me, that utterance may be given unto me, that I may open my mouth boldly to make known the mystery of the gospel, for which I am an ambassador in bonds, that therein I may speak boldly as I ought to speak. Well, over the past five or four nights, this is the fifth night, we have been looking at the six pieces of armour which God supplies to his troops. We had the belt of truth. The soldier's belt was buckled around his waist, it tightly tied up his loose robe and held his scabbard and all the other pieces of the armour in place. And when the belt was fastened, the soldier was then ready for action. The belt of truth represents the truth of God's word. We must know this truth in order to protect ourselves against the flesh, the world and the father of lies. Truth grounds us and reminds us of our identity in Christ. And then we had the breastplate of righteousness. The breastplate protected the soldier's vital organs in the heat of the battle when he wasn't quick enough to take up his shield. It acted as a last defence against a surprise attack by the enemy. It reminds us of the righteousness that has been given to us by Christ, which, of course, will never fail. Because of this robe of righteousness, we now have the desire and power to live out a holy life that is rooted in God's word. A holy life is a powerful defence against the attacks of the enemy. The Roman soldier wore leather sandals as well to protect their feet during long marches. 
They had extremely thick soles and were wrapped perfectly around their ankles in a way that protected against blistering. They also had hobnails under the sole to give them a firm foundation as they fought. And these boots of the gospel of peace remind us of our firm foundation in the gospel and that we can stand in the knowledge that we are sure and secure in our salvation. When we wear these boots, we can be confident in advancing forward, sharing the good news and telling others of the hope that is in us. And then we had the shield of faith. The Roman soldier's shield was the size of a small door, and it was made of wood, leather, and metal, and soaked in water to extinguish the burning arrows. He relied completely on his shield as enemy arrows rained down upon him. The shield of faith speaks of our trust in God's power and protection at all times, which allows us to remain committed in this spiritual war. When Satan's fiery darts try to impact our lives, we can deflect them and extinguish them by engaging the shield so we can stay in the fight for the glory of God. Then we have the helmet of salvation. The soldier's head is one of the most vulnerable areas of his body. And without his helmet on, one blow to the head could be fatal. The helmet of salvation protects us from discouragement and doubt. When insecure in our relationship with God, we can become easy prey for the enemy. But when we are confident that our eternity is certain in Christ, we have the ability to stand for Christ. And then finally, we had here the sword of the Spirit. All the pieces of the Roman soldier's armour are defensive weapons, but the sword was also used to attack, and in the hands of a skilled warrior, it could pierce through the the strongest defence. No soldier is ever completely equipped without his weapon. And as soldiers of Christ, our weapon is the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. Every other piece of the armour protects the wearer, but... With God's word, we are able to fight and we are able to defeat all principalities and powers and all rulers of the darkness of this world and spiritual wickedness in the highest of places. Christ used the word to resist the devil in the desert and we must do the same. When Paul wrote this letter to the Ephesians, he was a prisoner. He was being guarded by these Roman soldiers And so he was able to see the armour worn by these men, and with the help of the Holy Spirit, he was able to make a spiritual application using the armour as an illustration. This is the armour the Christian needs to fight the devil, and the spiritual lessons here have been clear. One is that all the armour is essential, because there is no point going into battle with half the armour on and leaving the other half back in the barracks. God's provision is complete and we need it all. Secondly, it is God who provides this armour, but it is his soldiers who must put it on. This means discipline and effort. There is no point talking about the armour or reading about the armour or admiring the armour or polishing the armour or even treating it as some sort of ornament. It must become our battle dress in war. But it's still not enough for the Christian soldier to recognise the enemy and to put the armour on. A soldier can have all the latest in technology when it comes to armaments and ammunition and have a great intelligence on the location of his enemy. 
But unless he possesses the courage and the energy that he needs to face the enemy and fight the enemy, then knowledge of the enemy and the superior equipment will be useless. This is also true with the church. We can put the armour on and be ready for the battle, but when the fiery darts start to hurtle towards us, somehow we can still find ourselves under pressure due to the lack of courage to fight or the motivation to confront or even the energy to resist these attacks. We can have all the armour in place, but if we lack the strength and the courage to go into battle, then we will surely fail. And this is why verse 18 of this chapter should be included when we speak of the whole armour of God. When we lack the power and bravery to fight, the problem is not that we've neglected to put the armour on. The problem is in how we've put the armour on. And this is where prayer comes in. If the pieces of the armour are our defensive weapon and the word of God is our offensive weapon, then prayer can only be called our secret weapon. Immediately following Paul's description of this armour, he makes an appeal for prayer because even though prayer is not part of the armour, it is indispensable to the success of the armour. Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones said, the armour which is provided for us by God cannot be used except in fellowship and communion with God. Every single piece, though excellent in itself, will not suffice us and will not avail us unless at all times we are in a living relationship to God and receiving strength and power from God. Through prayer, we gain the necessary strength and courage to stand firm and fight. And that's why Paul requested prayer so we could go out and preach the gospel boldly. We should never enter into the spiritual warfare without first praying on the whole armour of God because without prayer we are doomed to failure. But with prayer and the whole armour of God in place we cannot be defeated. And so there must be prayer to put this armour on. Prayer is the power behind the Christian armour. When we cease to pray, our energy energy fades and our courage diminishes and our fight is finished. Prayer is vital if we are going to press ahead in this war and experience victory in our battle with the devil. The role of prayer in this war is threefold. First of all, prayer is how we put the armour on. In the original Greek, the words praying always here at the start of verse 18 simply means by means of praying. In other words, Paul was saying that we put on the belt of truth, the breastplate of righteousness, the boots of the gospel of peace, the shield of faith, the helmet of salvation, and the sword of the Spirit by praying. And the hymn writer puts it well when he said, Stand up, stand up for Jesus, stand in his strength alone. The arm of flesh will fail you, ye dare not trust your own. Put on the gospel armour, each piece put on with prayer, where duty calls or danger be never wanting there. God reveals his will to us and he accomplishes his will in us through prayer. Paul said to Philippians in Philippians chapter 2, Wherefore, my beloved, as ye have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, For it is God which worketh in you both to will and to do of his good pleasure. 
In other words, God works in us so we can work out his will. God works through his word, through suffering, through the ministry of his people, and through prayer. God works in and through us, and prayer is an extremely important part of this ministry. We put on the armor of faith, and we exercise this faith by means of prayer. Each morning, before we do anything else, we should first of all surrender ourselves to the Lord. Paul wrote to the Romans in chapter 12, and he said, I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that ye present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. And be not conformed to this world, but be ye transformed by the renewing of your mind, that ye may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. We need to practice these verses every day. Before we put the armour on, we must present our body and mind and will as a sacrifice to the Lord. And then by faith, we should powerfully put on each piece of armour. And once we have the armour on, then something wonderful takes place. We find that God has equipped us and prepared us for the battle that day. Putting on the whole armour of God may not make the battle any easier that day. It, it, It may not limit the fiery darts of the devil. But it will mean the difference between success and failure. And then we also see that prayer makes the armour work. Not only is prayer the means by which we put the spiritual armour on, but it is also the power that makes the armour work. Merely putting on the armour doesn't accomplish anything for us if we don't, if we don't have prayer behind it. Armour on without prayer is just an empty shell and is useless, and we might as well have no armour on at all. God is not some person who is in a higher car business just sitting behind a desk. Nor is he some army corporal issuing a new recruit with his uniform over the counter. No, you see the wonderful reality in all of this is that God, he comes with the armour. We need the strength of God to fight this battle and not just the equipment he provides. Prayer gives the Christian soldier the energy and the power and the strength he needs to face the enemy. Putting on the whole armour of God together with prayer is how we are able to, in verse, as verse 10 says, be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. We must maintain a personal, intimate relationship with our Heavenly Father. And to do this, prayer is absolutely essential. We shouldn't just fit prayer into a busy life, but prayer should be at the centre of our life. Prayer is communion with God. And there is nothing more important than that. Everything else pales into insignificance compared to communion with God. If we don't have this communion and fellowship with God, we miss the whole point of being a Christian because we have nothing and we are nothing. But if this special relationship exists between us and God, then we become invincible. Our duty as a soldier of Christ is to stand firm. Verse 11, it says, Put on the whole armour of God, that ye may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. And then verse 13, Wherefore take unto you the whole armour of God, that ye may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all, to stand. Jesus Christ has already won the battle. We have by faith claimed our inheritance in Christ. And therefore the purpose of our present fight against Satan is to stand firm against his strategies and his attempts to rob us of our inheritance. 
In the book of Joshua, God's people claimed their inheritance. They stood strong and they remained faithful to the Lord. However, if we move across then to the book of Judges, the people began to walk away from God. They prostituted themselves to idols and they actually became worse than the enemy nations around them. And so God gave them exactly what they wanted, which was a life without God and all the benefits associated with being in God. He allowed the other nations to invade the promised land and without the Lord's blessing and presence and power, the Israelites could not stand firm against their enemies. While the children of Israel still lived in the land of their inheritance, the situation was they did not enjoy their inheritance. Other nations came in and robbed them of their enjoyment. And this is what Satan wants to do with us. He will never take our inheritance in Christ away from us, but he can keep us from enjoying it. And if we're not enjoying it, then it's very unlikely that we will recruit others into the service. But when our armour is worn and working through prayer, we are able to stand firm and Satan is unable to rob us of our blessings. For example, the breastplate of righteousness reminds us we are made righteous when we repent and trust in Christ as our saviour. However, Satan is constantly accusing us of losing our righteousness. Claiming our righteousness every time we pray, it helps us remember that we have been justified by faith and this will help us to live a sanctified life. Prayer also gives us the strength to walk. After we have put on the boots of the gospel of peace, Satan wants to destroy our witness. But when we pray, we receive power from the Holy Spirit which enables us to witness. Jesus told his disciples in Acts chapter 1, Ye shall receive power, after that the Holy Ghost has come upon you, and ye shall be witnesses unto me both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and in Samaria and unto the uttermost part of the earth. You see, we can go to Bible college, we can attend courses on evangelism, we can read books on witnessing and watch YouTube videos of other street pastors, but unless the Holy Spirit gives us the power, then we cannot witness. This power can only come as a result of prayer. And likewise, when we pray, our faith grows stronger. We are better equipped to deflect and put out the fiery darts of doubt shot by the devil and his demons. The armour begins to work when we pray. And that is why prayer is so vitally important to the Christian life. Through prayer, we put the armour on and through prayer, we make the armour work. One of the great heroes of the Old Testament was Nehemiah who under threat rebuilt the walls of Jerusalem with nothing more than rubble. In the book of Nehemiah you will discover he prays on ten different occasions. During the terrorist campaign here in our province, um, our part-time UDR soldiers and RUC officers often went off to work their civilian employment with their lunchbox under one arm and their personal protection weapon under the other arm. They were constantly under threat from Satan's terrorists, and they don't get the recognition or the praise that they deserve for what they endured over many years, and many of them, we know, paid the ultimate sacrifice to protect us. Well, when leading the people in their work in Jerusalem, Nehemiah, he had a trowel in one hand, and he had a sword in the other hand, And whenever he faced a problem, he simply prayed about it. He knew prayer was the power behind his armour 
and behind his work. And we also see that prayer gives the soldier victory. Every good soldier knows the importance of keeping his equipment in proper working order. His weapon will be clean and his kit will be ready for battle at a moment's notice. You know, I'll never forget the sergeant major on my UDR recruits course many, many years ago saying, if your boots are polished and your trousers are pressed, then the terrorists will think twice about taking you on. Now, I'm not sure if that was true or not, but it was, however, hammered into us every single day about the importance of keeping our gear in proper working order. And for the Christian soldier to keep his armour bright and functioning through prayer is even more important, for we are continually at war with Satan and must always be ready and be prepared. If we lay down our armour even for a minute, Satan will move in and conquer us because he's always, always, always looking for that weak link. So prayer serves a third vital function in arming ourselves for battle. It not only enables us to put the armour on and to maintain the armour, but it also enables us to help the entire army of Christ to win the war. The battle is between God and Satan, but there is no neutrality in this war. We, as soldiers of Christ, are on God's side, so we are very much involved, even though the battle is the Lord's. Satan is mighty, but God is almighty. And I am so glad tonight that I am on the winning side. You know, I was 10 years of age when Argentina invaded the Falkland Islands way back in 1982. Uh, It was a very exciting time in my life, I have to admit, and I can remember it very well. In fact, I still have the book here that my dad bought me, and that was over 40 years ago. You know, that was a a time when we could still trust the media to actually present and report the facts of what was actually going on. So as a family, we purchased and bought a TV license in those days, and we were glued to all the news reports and bulletins. On the Falkland Islands in 1982, we're living a community of men and women and children in peace. They were under the rule and the protection of the British Crown, and they were very happy to be so. But all that changed when Argentina, uh, an unwelcome enemy, invaded, imposing upon them a foreign rule and authority and taking away their freedom. The small token presence of British military on the island could not put up a fight, and there was nothing the islanders could do to resist, and their only hope was that Britain a thousand miles away, would value them enough to come to their rescue. And with Margaret Thatcher as Prime Minister, that is exactly what Britain did. Negotiations and talks proved hopeless, and so a task force was assembled and sent by the United Kingdom. The Argentines must be defeated and forced to withdraw. The cost of achieving this was enormous in terms of lives and equipment, Some argued that the price was too high to pay and that the Falklands were not worth fighting over, but the price was paid nonetheless. 255 British lives were lost, but victory was accomplished, and when freedom was restored to the islanders, there was great rejoicing. The enemy, however, though defeated and humiliated, 
did not relinquish its claims over the islands. And so the threat still hangs over the islanders even to this day. Not only that, but the enemy left behind many minefields and booby traps, and these were a constant source of danger for a long, long time after. The victory had been secured, but the threat of danger still existed. Similarly, God created the world, and he put Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden to enjoy its beauty and to live for his glory. It was under God's authority and rule. But then Satan, an unwelcome enemy, invaded it with his weapon of sin. Adam and Eve became casualties and were defeated, and ever since that invasion, the whole of mankind has been under enemy occupation. Satan now rules as the prince of this world. There was nothing that could be done, and far from resisting the enemy, man actually began to enjoy enemy occupation, and he began to love his sin. Our only hope was that God, who was a long, long way away in heaven, would value us enough to send a rescue mission, and that is exactly what God did. There were no negotiations. There was no dialogue or diplomacy with this enemy. The enemy had to be defeated, and man had to be set free. And so God sent a rescue mission. Now, he didn't send 12 legions of angels. He didn't muster up a task force of Old Testament saints. But he sent his only son, born of a woman under the law, to redeem those under the law, that we might receive full rights of sons. So the cost to God was enormous. His son had to die to redeem guilty sinners. Now it could could have been well said and argued that the price was too high to pay and that sinners were not worthy of it. But still the price was paid with the precious blood of Christ. Jesus died on Calvary and victory was secured. Salvation has been achieved. It It is finished was his cry and sinners rejoice when they are saved. But Satan, although defeated, does not give up his claim. And the threat to God's people still exists to this day. Our sinful nature is not dead, and it acts like a spiritual minefield. The victory is in no doubt, but the threat and danger is still very real because we are all still at war. In verse 18, we are instructed to pray for all the saints, not just for ourselves. It says, praying always with all prayer and supplication in the Spirit, and watching thereunto with all perseverance and supplication, for all sins, all sins. You know, I've heard of some church prayer meetings where if you prayed for another group of believers or the other evangelical church down the road or maybe a gospel mission and brought before God their needs and wants and petitions, well, you would be frowned upon by the church elders. Well, you know, folks, I am so glad that I don't go to a church like that. You see, there are some churches... And they think that they are the only ones fighting this battle with Satan. However, we may have put ourselves into different regiments, but the redeemed are all in the one army. We are all serving the one field marshal. We're all fighting the one war. Every saint is involved. We are all on the same side with the same enemy. And we must uplift and encourage our fellow believers by praying for them daily. 
In fact, if we don't pray for them, the Bible says we are sinning. Samuel said to God's people, God forbid that I should sin against the Lord in ceasing to pray for you. Not only are we to pray for all the saints, but our prayer life must also be habitual. This means we should pray all kinds of prayers, including prayers of thanksgiving as well as prayers of supplication and request. We must also be persistent in prayer and make prayer an integral and continual part of our lives. We should be communicating with God throughout the day. And when we fail to seek the Lord's guidance on even the smallest matter, we will experience defeat. After the Israelites' victory in Jericho, Joshua was now so confident that he he thought he didn't need God's guidance before the battle of Ai. If he had got before God in prayer, I believe he would have discovered that there was sin in the camp. And as a result, lives were needlessly lost and Joshua's army were soundly defeated. When the Gibeonites came to the camp, Joshua didn't pray concerning the situation either. He forgot all about the wiles of the devil and he was tricked into making a false covenant with the enemy. In this spiritual war, no battle is so easy that we can win it without prayer. Only the Holy Spirit can give us the victory and the Spirit's power is imparted only through prayer. The Holy Spirit not only empowers us for the battle, but he also enables us to pray in the Lord's will. Our prayers should be sincere and from the heart. Verse 18 indicates we are to be continually in prayer on every occasion, watching and remaining alert and being vigilant. When we're on the streets, we always begin and end with prayer. And I've got into the habit of keeping both eyes open when we're praying on the streets. As we pray, it is important that we remain alert, praying with our eyes always on the enemy, lest he would move in and defeat us with one of his deceptive tactics. We must be persistent in prayer, no matter how difficult the battle may be. Praying for other believers is a blessing, not only for them, but also for us, because in prayer we are able to share in their ministry. Every believer is also encouraged and uh, and strengthened in the knowledge that other Christians are praying for them. So, brothers and sisters, you may not be able to do what others are doing, but you can be very much part of what they are doing, by praying for them. This will be a blessing to them and a blessing to you. Without prayer, our spiritual armour will be of little use to us. We must put on each piece of the armour with prayer and then pray continually in order to keep the armour bright and working properly. Besides praying for ourselves, we should pray daily for the needs of our fellow soldiers. With the power of prayer energizing our armor, nothing will be able to stop the Christian army army from winning this war. So victory is assured in all of God's people in this spiritual warfare. We have victory in the past. As Christians, victory in the past has already taken place. Otherwise, we wouldn't even be in this battle. You would still be a prisoner of Satan shut up in the dungeon of sin. But at the moment of salvation, condemnation is replaced by justification. Paul said, There is therefore now no condemnation to them which are in Christ Jesus. Guilty sinners are made right with God and are accepted by God because of the righteousness of Christ. The law of God demands that wages of sin, which is death, be paid in full. 
Justification fully meets the rightful demands of the law by crediting us with the righteousness of Christ. When Jesus died on the cross, he died in our place as our substitute, bearing our sin and our guilt and taking our hell. Therefore, victory in the past for us means no condemnation, complete forgiveness of our sins and absolute reconciliation with God. Christ's work on the cross was a perfect work of atonement and can never be taken away from us and is a victory to be rejoiced about and celebrated over every day. And as a result, we also have victory now in the present. Even though we have victory in the Lord Jesus Christ over the guilt and condemnation of sin, its evil power and influence daily threatens our peace with God. Our salvation can never be lost but the joy and assurance can depart unless we know victory in the Christian life over the power of sin. It is for this victory that we need the armour of God. We are only in this battle because we are saved. The battle we are engaged in is evidence that we are indeed Christian soldiers. We We may not be perfect, and we certainly won't be in this life. None of us are the Christians that we ought to be, but praise God and glory to God, None of us are the people that we used to be. We are all aware of our sin, but isn't it true that we are also aware of God's sanctifying work in us? We do not live or act or speak the way that we used to. Now we read our Bibles. Now we pray. We never did that before. If we sat down and compared ourselves now to what once we used to be before we were born again, we would discover 101 little things that are evidence of victory over sin in our lives. The evidence clearly states that old things have passed away and all things have become new. The battle is evidence of the power of sin, but the fact that we are still walking with God along the narrow road is evidence of victory in many areas of our lives, and that should really encourage each one of us tonight. We don't want to be complacent, to the many defeats we suffer, but neither do we want to minimize the work of God's grace that is going on within us. And so we must groan in repentance before God for the times when temptation does come our way, because the Bible says if we confess our sin, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sin and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. But we must also learn to rejoice and praise the Lord when his power enables us to be victorious over temptation. And of course, because of this past and this present victory, there will be victory for us all in the future. Victory in the future will mean the complete eradication of sin and evil and ungodliness. This will take place when Jesus Christ returns in glory and Satan is cast into the lake of fire and brimstone. The cross and the empty tomb assure us of this final future victory. Satan is already a defeated foe. We would say in Tyrone, he is already dead, if he'd only the wit to stiffen. The final victory will be celebrated when God brings into being a new heaven and a new earth, which will be the eternal home of the righteous. And so I'd like to finish uh, with this quote, again from Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones. He said, When God made man, he first of all made a home for him to live in. 
Man was not made as a spirit. From the beginning he was made a body, soul and spirit, and God made him to live in a physical universe. So my argument is that if God is to defeat Satan finally and completely, he must restore everything to its original condition. So if heaven just means those of us who are believers are finally going to get rid of this body and dwell in a spiritual realm in a purely spiritual condition, then redemption and salvation are not complete. God's plan of redemption is not complete until there is an earth for man to live in and live on in the body. Paradise regained cannot be anything less than that. But thank God that that is the very thing that Scripture teaches. We are not to look forward merely to a vague, indefinite, nebulous spiritual state. No, we shall be in the body and we shall be on a new earth, under a new heavens wherein dwelleth righteousness. That and nothing short of that will establish God's glory and his final triumph over the devil and all who belong to him. So what a future every one of us have to look forward to if we're saved. Some of our loved ones are already in that future, and shortly we will join them. But in the meantime, brothers and sisters, there is a war to fight, and there are souls to be saved. So let us fight the good fight of faith, Let us lay hold on eternal life. Put on the whole armour of God that ye may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. Amen. And we trust the Lord will bless uh, these messages to our hearts. We're going to turn in closing and we're going to uh, sing this final hymn as we not only bring our meeting to an end, but our week to an end. Fight the good fight with all thy might. Christ is thy strength and Christ thy right. Lay hold on life and it shall be thy joy and crown eternally. And we'll stand as we bring our meeting to a close.